in the season of Advent for those nine weeks. We'll be preaching on a, a series on the doctrine of God, uh, specifically looking at the moral perfections of God and the way that those moral perfections have been put on display and the way that we should be responding to who God has revealed himself to be. We're going to do that through the November and Christmas seasons together. And then in 2011, we will be pressing into the Gospel of Mark for a while and swimming deeply in the person and the work of this Jesus of Nazareth who was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Um, So that's where we're going. Today we're hitting on a Proverbs text that deals with how these hands of ours and how these hearts of ours handle our wealth, our money, our stuff. This is one of those church topics that churches get really gun-shy with and avoid talking about and stay away from as often as possible. I've gotten them back-to-back here two times in a row. We preached on something that you will rarely hear preached on last time I was in the pulpit with you guys, um, abortion. And today, we're keeping it steady with difficult topics, and I'm going to be talking to you about your, your wallet, your bank account, your wealth, and your money. Um, we think that it's crazy that a church would have any trepidation about addressing this from the pulpit into the lives of their people. This is one of those areas that every one of us will be faced with every single day of our lives. It is a journey that is just littered with potential pitfalls all the way along the way. And it is one of these places that we just have to get it right if we are going to be a community of gospel people. Jesus knew this. This is why our Lord Jesus talked about money, finances, wealth over and over and over again. Brent read the words of Jesus to us earlier from Matthew's gospel. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and your money. It cannot be done. Can you hear that? Jesus knew the dead seriousness of this for your soul. Our hearts have got to be undivided in their devotion to our Lord. And wealth, the Bible sometimes calls it mammon, money is one of those false gods, those idols that will sneak in there and demand your devotion and your worship and pull you away from Christ. My prayer for you guys this week has been shaped by 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, If you don't know how to pray, what to say when you pray, find a Bible, find some text in there and begin to pray those themes and words back to God. When I run out of things to pray for you, this is what I do. It's actually become a habit of mine. And the text that was helping me to pray for us this week is 2 Corinthians 11. He's writing to a church that he planted and he says these words. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you or engaged you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, pure, singular devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if, someone, or if you receive a different spirit than the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so this became my prayer about preaching to you guys today. Father, let Seven Mile Road have a sincere, pure, simple, undivided, singular devotion to Christ. Don't let us be deceived by, don't let us put up with any other gospels, spirits, or Jesuses, or Lords. And specifically, Father, please do not let a love for an affection for, a dependence on money, sneak into the soul of this church and become another gospel 
tugging at war with Jesus that dilutes and divides and muddies the waters of our soul. And so pastorally, can you see why we can't not preach about this to you as often as the text of Scripture takes us to it? It is too intensely important for your souls that they remain undivided. You cannot serve God and money. Our text allows us to hit on this in a proverbial way today. Okay, before I read our text, I actually can recite it to you. It's just two verses. I need you to remember with me what kind of truth we are dealing with here together. We have said this over and over and over again in this series on the Proverbs. We need to get it right again today. We are preaching through older covenant writings called the Proverbs. And one of the marks of the wisdom of the Proverbs is that it is proverbial truth. Proverbs, proverbial truth. Okay, it's kind of warm in here, but you guys are sticking with me. I might have to dance around a little to keep your attention. All right, so what does that mean, proverbial truth? It means that many of these Proverbs, all of these Proverbs are true, but It's not the kind of truth that is necessarily, exhaustively, in all situations, at all times, in every place, perfectly applicable. What we mean is, this is true, totally true, but it's the kind of truth that needs to be applied wisely by you, saints of God, in the right way, in the right context, at the right time. Now, this is super hard, or we would say wicked hard for our Western, mathematical, mechanical, wooden thinkers to get this. But you have to get here with me today. The Proverbs are not supposed to be read in mathematical stone. That's not the way that they work. When we do that with them, and we will see that we have done that with this text, we twist the text way out of the shape that it's supposed to take in our souls. And we can end up in places over here with the text over there, never having meant for us to land over there. Now, this third Proverbs of, chapter of Proverbs is like that. It's a beautiful opening section to this collection of wisdom. Solomon is making these broad, sweeping statements to his son, compelling him to pursue and get wisdom. And he's saying, my son, listen to me. God has fashioned this world in a way that it works a certain way. Learn what those ways are. Embrace those ways. Walk in those ways, and you will put yourself in a position to be blessed by God. And so we too, like the son who first received these, should hear these texts in that spirit and hang on to them by faith without losing sight of the fact that proverbial true is not mathematical true. All right, let me give you one example, and this this will start to make sense. Here we go. At the start of the third chapter, he writes this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Proverbial truth. All right, now question, does that text in your Bible guarantee that every single Christian who follows Jesus with a sincere heart is going to live to be 96, 97, 98 years old, or even into the AARP times? Is it a guarantee of truth like that? Does that text guarantee that every one of us who serves Jesus from a sincere and devoted heart is going to live a conflict-free life? No. There are circumstances where the truth of this proverb will not necessarily be the case in a specific situation. Sometimes awesome 11-year-old children who love Jesus with all of their heart die tragically at a young age. Sometimes war breaks out and thousands of godly young men, 20 years old, 23 years old, 27-year-old, are killed because of the lack of peace in a conflict. We all know faithful believers whose days were cut short because of the fallenness of this world. So does that mean that the proverb is not true, that length of days and long life is is not something that comes for those who get wisdom and fear God and walk in his ways? 
No. What does it mean? It means that this is proverbially true. It's telling us, here's how God's world basically works. All other things equal, if you hold fast to his commands with a sincere and pure devotion to him, embrace his wisdom, stay far away from folly and sin, you can expect a long, blessed, peaceful, rich life in service to him. Of course, there are exceptions, but those exceptions do what? They prove the rule. The time when we go, whoa, that is outside of the norm, shows that the norm, proverbially true, is the blessing of God and fruitfulness and long life for his people. Okay? So this is why a preacher can come and stand in a pulpit and preach these texts at you with great passion and great conviction because they are true, proverbially true. And it is so helpful for us to get this wisdom and order our lives accordingly. So I am not going to be afraid to preach with passion and conviction to you today, even if there may be cases in this room where your life has a different path. For example, some of you cannot get to serve Jesus and not money if you have any money, and so you will pursue a life with no wealth at all. Does that mean that the proverb that I'm about to read to you is not true? No. It's proverbial true, and we take it into life generally and see what the case is as we walk through our life. Okay, so when I read this now, here we go. You'll know why I just took the four minutes out of your life to say all of that, and we're going to spin around to how this proverb has been stood on its head. I want you to hear this like this. As we find ourselves with wealth, that the glory of God and the grace of God given to us in the gospel compels us to honor him with our wealth when we have it, and that when we honor him, he blesses us. Let's swim in that proverbial truth today. Here's the text from Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits from all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray that in your grace you would speak clearly to us. Our hearts are so easily muddied and divided. I pray that you would make us a people of a singular and pure devotion. We have an altar that we worship at. We have a gospel that we believe. It's the gospel of materialism or consumerism. When it comes to our wealth, our favorite verb to do is spend, 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 purchase, buy, spend, purchase, buy. This is what we love to do with our wealth. Things that will please us, comfort us, convenience us, make us feel good and happy. I could run through a million statistics for you. Just one anecdote. How many Halloween costume stores pop up in the month of October on Route 1? I do not understand this. Who is buying all these costumes? Walmart, Target, iParty exist already. Now every three quarters of a mile, there's a new Halloween costume shop. What is going on there? We love to buy stuff. We love to spend money. Our wealth goes out of our hands on things for ourselves just like that. It's the way that we live in Boston culture. We could go through a million statistics. Like, you know, we spend in this country over $20 billion a year on ice cream. $20 billion. We have wealth, and what do we do with it? We spend that wealth on stuff. Okay. There is a folly behind our folly when it comes to our wealth. And it is the folly of having a worldview where we see ourselves as owners of our wealth rather than as stewards of our wealth. So let's talk about that for a second. When we say, I am an owner of all that I have, ownership is the way that I think about this. What happens? My money is mine. I am the one who owns it. And I will do with it what I please. And so we make our list of what we're going to do with our money. Now, you guys have that list. You know how it flows, right? If I'm the owner, I'm starting with stuff for me. So the first thing I do is pay my taxes. Actually, they take the money from my taxes. 
because I don't want to go to prison. I like this country, and I like being free. So that's at the top of the list. We also need health insurance, most of us, because our bodies break down. I've got to have that covered. We need somewhere to live. We've got a housing expense. We need food to eat. We're buying groceries. We have to pay our utilities. We need clothes to wear. We've got vacations, savings, college funds, investments. All this me, 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 me stuff because it's my money. I own it. It's about me. And then what comes at the bottom of that list, at the bottom of the spreadsheet? That's where charity comes in or giving. Once we've worked through our expenditures, if there is something left over at the end, depending on who we are and what our thing is, we will give some money away. So to church, to a charity, um, these walks that go on every single Saturday and Sunday morning from as soon as it's not 20 degrees until as soon as it is 20 degrees, we give charity away at the end of the list. Okay. And because that comes as the end of the list, our giving away of our wealth fluctuates depending on how things are going. So in a good year, what happens in the month of December? People are trying to find good causes to do their year-end giving. Why? Because they got to the bottom of their list. There was still money left. They're going to give away their wealth now. What happens at the end of a bad year? You're struggling just to buy the Christmas presents that you need to buy, and, and there's nothing left to give away to charities or church or to the needy. We've seen this in our recession. There's a center that does these studies at Boston College and they said that in 2009, charitable giving was down 5 to 6% in 2009. Why does that happen? Because charity comes last, and when the money starts to dry up, we take care of all this other stuff before we will give anything away. The last thing to make the list is the first thing to go. My money, my call. That's a picture of basically how an unregenerate Boston person who says, I own my wealth, would deal with their money. Okay, now swing over to me, with me to the scriptures, and we come across a totally different concept about your wealth, a very different take. And rather than the concept of ownership, we see the concept of stewardship. And the idea is this. I am not my own. I am not the owner of me. My body is not my own. My time is not my own. My wealth is not my own. All that I have has been entrusted to me by a very gracious God, my Father. And my job is not primarily to satisfy self, satisfy self, satisfy self, but to honor God with the things that he has given me. See the switch there? From owner to steward. Now we could talk about what that looks like for our bodies. This is why sexual purity is such an intense need in our lives. Paul says it like this. Your body is not your own to do whatever you would like with. It's a temple of God. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You hear that? We could talk about our time like this. Every minute, all of our days, all of our year is God's. He sustains us breath by breath. That's what we're doing here, right? We show that all of our time is God's by giving him this time to come together on a Sunday morning and carving off for him. Why? We are stewards of our time. We don't do whatever we want whenever we want. The Lord's day is a day for honoring God with our time. Our text today allows us to think deeply on what does this look like, stewardship, honoring God with the way that we handle our money. Okay, let's walk through the verse together. It's got two verses in four different parts. We're going to hit them all. The first verse says this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. This is so typical of a Hebrew line of poetry or Proverbs. The first line gives you the broad, general truth. Then the second line says the same thing, but gives you a little more specifics on how to do the first thing. So let's hear the first broad truth, 
And then we'll hear the second specific way this looks. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Let's deal with all these words. Honor. This is that Hebrew word that sounds something like kabod, and it literally means weight. It's where we get the idea of glory, honor, wonder, worth, value. So Solomon is saying to his son, honor or show respect to or show how valuable it is or give glory to or hold in high esteem someone who is great and weighty and glorious and worthy. That's the command. And it's not just honor in the recesses of your own soul or your mind, but honor by showing. In other words, show off to anybody who's paying attention how glorious and weighty and valuable someone or something is. Honor is an external display, a show of your conviction that someone or something is glorious. Honor the Lord. Okay, whenever you see the Lord in the older covenant scriptures, think right away of our gospel or their redemption from Exodus, which prefigured the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord is a personal name. This is how God revealed himself to Moses just before he freed his people from slavery. The Lord is the covenantal name of God. That means that when you hear the Lord, right away you think, God of all grace, God of all mercy, God of all patience, God of all kindness, who rescued us from slavery and brought us into a beautiful land and has given us life and has done this on his own accord, even though we didn't deserve it, the Lord, Yahweh. Honor your covenantal God because of the grace that he has shown to you. And the third word is wealth. Honor, show off how great is the Lord, the one who has shown you grace with your wealth. Okay, in these days there was no money, no coins, no euros, no dollars. Your wealth was whatever your lands or your flocks produced for you. So we're talking cows, bulls, land, Grain, oil, wheat, wine, you tracking with me? Stuff equaled wealth. And so the command is, when you have wealth, give that wealth. And in giving that wealth, you honor the Lord who has shown you such grace. You could say it like this. Part of the reason that wealth exists, that God has allowed you to have crops or herds or vineyards, is that it gives you an opportunity to show off for anyone who's looking how great and worthy and valuable he is. Have you ever thought that way about your wealth? That your wealth exists as an opportunity for you to show anybody who's looking how honorable and valuable and worthy your covenant Lord is. This is wisdom This is what Solomon says to his son. When you have wealth, you show off how great the Lord is by giving that wealth to him. Okay, second part of the verse. Let's assume that your heart is actually there. How would would we do that? What does that look like? How do you honor God with, with your wealth? How is Solomon specifically encouraging his son to do that? Here's what he says. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your produce. Okay, some points here to just help you understand this. First of all, this first fruits idea means that Solomon is commanding his son to participate in a religious festival that they would have of giving some of their wealth to the Lord. Um, It's the only command in the Proverbs where participating in the religious life of the community is encouraged and commanded. This is it right here. Here's what would happen. At the harvest, when you were finished bringing in all your grapes, all your grain, all the fruit that your fields would have developed for you, the very first thing that these people did 
was to have a huge worship celebration when they would bring with them buckets of wine, barrels of grapes, things that you hold grain in, whatever those are, lots of those things with grain in them, all together to the place appointed for them to worship. Think of it like this. If you were a part of this culture, you were wicked rich, wicked rich on one day of the year. And that was the day when you finally sat down and your harvest had come in. Your wealth was everywhere. Think 52 paychecks showing up in the mail at once. Boom! Plus your Christmas bonus. Think of that day when wealth is just overflowing in your bank account. In this case, overflowing in their barns and their vats. They had wealth on this day of the harvest. And what was the very first thing that the people of God did when they received this wealth? They honored the Lord by coming together in worship and tithing or bringing to the Lord some of the wealth that he had enabled them to gather. Okay? All right, so that's the festival of weeks, it was called, bringing the first fruits of your harvest. All right, and when they did that, it was always that weird word, first fruits, or always the very best of the harvest that they had brought in. As you read the Older Covenant, you will see first, 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 first. Every time you see the word first, you know that it was the thing that was set apart as holy or devoted to God. So the first son is born, he is set apart as holy to God. When their animals would give birth, the first calf that would be born would be kept special for a sacrifice of the firstborn to God. Holy, different, special. And in this festival, it was the first fruits, the best of their harvest. They would take that and present it to the Lord. Grain, oil, wine, wool, honey, whatever it was, the best that they harvested, that was kept aside to God. Why? Because it showed honor and respect to God. All right, think of it like this, orange juice. Have you guys ever gotten up and you're having breakfast and you've got your milk and your cereal and whatever pleases your fancy for breakfast? And you realize, oh, I have nothing to drink. I'm supposed to drink something with sugar in it to get me going. I'm going to go get some orange juice. You go over to the fridge and you see the Tropicana or the Sunny Delight for you cheap folks who don't want to pay for the real thing. And you reach in and you pick up the carton. And what happens? Oh, it's too light. Have you had this experience before? You pick up the orange juice and ah, it just does not weigh what it is supposed to weigh. Now, why is that like a moment of panic for you? Because all that's left in that orange juice container is about this much down at the bottom. I'll call it the last fruits right now. I'm talking about the dregs at the bottom of the orange juice carton. Am I the only person who's ever drank that before? Okay, you have. So you go and you pour it in the cup and you just got an eight ounce cup and it doesn't even fill to the top. And what happens when you put that bottom of the orange juice container, orange juice to your lips? It's just like, bam, there is something very wrong with the dregs that are in there. And so after that first experience, what do you do now? When you reach in and you go, ah, it's too light. You're looking for another one. You slide that one behind it. You take out the new one. You shake it up. You pop the top. And now you have what? First fruits. And that stuff tastes nice. Now let's say that you had a person of great honor, of great worth, of great value, who happened to be grabbing breakfast at your house. If you went into your refrigerator and you grabbed the carton and you went, ah, too light, would you ever pour the dregs of that juice into a cup and serve it to that person? You would never do that. It would be a total lack of respect. You'll drink that yourself before you'll provide that to them. You'll pour that in the sink and go get a fresh orange juice. And the very first cup that comes out, that's what you give to the person of honor who is in your home. Are you feeling that? It's the same concept with first fruits. It's an act of worship and honor and respect that the very first thing you do with the biggest grapes and the, the most golden grain and the prime thing that you have harvested 
You take that 10%, you put it in your cart, you go find the place of worship, and the first thing you do is you give that to God. And where did that money go to? They would come to that time, they would give their first fruits, it would come into the place of worship, and it would be given to the Levites, who were the priests, who did the work of the covenant for the people, and it would be given to the widow and to the orphan, it would be given to the alien, to the poor, to those who were in need. So when you came and you gave to God, you were giving to the work of God, the covenant work for the people, and to those who were in need, all right? So let me sum this up for you, the first part of this command. Solomon says this to his son, boy, be wise. When the festival of weeks happens and God has blessed you with wealth and a harvest and you are rich on that day, the first thing you do is gather up the best from that harvest and you show your face at that festival and you gladly and generously and joyfully honor the Lord your God by giving to him from the wealth that he has given to you. Or I could say it like this. You honor your covenantal Lord. You show how great he is by giving away your wealth in obedient response to his command and to his grace. You hear that? How does this proverb teach us to honor our covenant Lord? By giving away our wealth. That shows off how valuable and weighty and glorious he is. Okay, it would be totally fine if this proverb just ended right there, done, finished, let's take the sacrament, sing, and go enjoy the day. It is good and it is right to give in this way, but the verse doesn't end there. The proverb doesn't end there. There's not even a period yet, so I've got to keep going. And as I keep going, it's going to knock you off your seat. We get a glimpse of the nature of this God who has become our covenant Lord and what he is like in the last half of this truth. All right, before I say that last half again, think with me through what are the possible ways that we might expect God to react to this giving of our first fruits with joyful hearts and thanks for the wealth that he has given to us. Well, he could be the kind of God who's just so busy and he has so much going on that he just doesn't really notice and he just expects you to do it and you would just come and do it and um, receives it, but there's no real paying attention of God to this act of obedience on our part. Would that be okay? Totally fine. You should be giving this way. If God was busy and he missed it, or if he just assumed it would be done, and the proverb ended here, no complaints in this room. Or he could be the kind of God who's counting the pennies and counting the grapes and wanting to make sure that every last one is in. Or it could be the kind of God that has his checklist and is waiting for you to come. And when you come, he pats you on the head and checks it off. Any of those things would be fine. It is right to give in this way. But the, the, that is not the way that this verse ties these things together. You're going to be astounded when you see what happens. We have come. We have honored the Lord who has given us all things, salvation and grace. We have given him just a small portion of the wealth that he has given to us. Now, how would we expect him to react? Not do much, just say, good job, just be pleased with it, and the paragraph ends there? No, listen to this. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. That these things are tied together should just knock you guys right out of your seat. What kind of God is this that we serve in the gospel, in covenant grace? He blesses us covenantally with salvation. He unites himself to us by his name. He requires that we respond to his gospel kind of grace by gladly and generously giving back to him a small part of what he has enabled us to earn. And then when we do what is right and obvious and required, he ties to that obedience, blessing, so that when we give, we receive. And when we keep giving, we keep receiving. And when we keep on giving, we keep receiving. 
That word plenty there is the Hebrew word sabah. It means abundance, excess. You can't store it. You ran out of room. It's like the clothes in my girl's room. Sabah right there. It's everywhere. Ten closets would not be enough for these two little girls. Plenty, overflowing. The words in here are plural to show the, the nature of the blessing that God gives to his people. That's bursting with wine. That word is to breach or to overflow. So you'd have these big vats where you put the new wine in, the grape juice that needed to ferment. God's going to bless you so much, you're going to run out of vat space. There's going to be spillage of your new wine everywhere. This is how God works. He is always tying blessing to obedience. He ties them together. And so here's how this works in this Proverbs. We give, we honor God. When someone sees that, they will say to themselves, who is this God that these guys serve, that they give of their wealth, they give of it. We give obediently with grateful hearts. And tied to that, God gives to us. And we give to God. And he gives to us a beautiful circle of grace received, grace responded to, and grace received. Blessing for you. As you open your hands and give, you're not going to run out of money or provisions for yourself. We give knowing the nature of our God who loves to bless us abundantly. Okay, now because our hearts are just so jacked up, we in our day, especially 2010 Boston American church culture, we have taken this beautiful proverbial truth that is all about God and how we get to show off the glory and the worth and the grace and the generosity of God by being a people who love to give their wealth away. That's what this proverb is about. And we have turned it on its head and we have made these two verses into a get-rich-quick scheme that becomes all about us. Okay, have you guys heard this text preached in that way? It goes something like this. Jesus, your covenant Lord, but they wouldn't say it that way. Jesus wants you to be rich. And I mean Rolex rich, multiple homes rich, Ben's rich. You have your own airplane rich. That's the new mark. Your own airplane rich. Wow. And he has a mechanism for getting you rich. And that is by you giving to the church or giving to my evangelistic ministry or giving and giving so that because it will trigger him giving back to you. Hey, Proverbs 3 says it in black and white. If you honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty of green and your vats will be bursting with wine. And that's how we preach this text. Do you guys see what happened to our motivation right there? It went from being all about the worth and the weight and the glory of God and honoring Him to being all about ourselves and the stuff that we can accumulate. And we go even as far as to say this, my getting super rich, your getting super rich, honors kabods Yahweh, the Lord. You will get to point to all your stuff and say, look how great God is that he gave me all this stuff. Do you see what has happened in here? We stuck this on its head. Suddenly a proverb that says, we show off how great God is by giving away wealth has now become what? A proverb that says, we show off how great God is by accumulating wealth. Can everybody see that that misses the heart of this text. It's not true. No one has ever stopped and looked at a pastor's big house, big car, big yacht, big airplane, and walked away saying, wow, God must be incredibly valuable, incredibly worthy, incredibly glorious. No one has ever driven by a church and looked in the parking lot and saw 
a fleet of luxury cars and said to themselves, wow, their covenant, the Lord, must be something else, something so valuable and worthy and magnificent and glorious. They see the airplanes and the cars and the houses and the accumulating of stuff all the time. All they have to do is throw on their TV, take a walk around their neighborhood, look into their own hearts. The accumulating of wealth is nothing new. But if you show them a community of people who gives away 10, 15, 20% of their wealth, of their income. See, if you show them a community who gives generously to the work of God and to the poor, if you show them a community that foregoes the latest comfort and the latest convenience in life in exchange for giving away some of their wealth, if you show them a church that continues resiliently, faithfully to give to the work of God and to the poor, even when Boston College tells us you need to cut that by 5.3% this year, what's wrong with you? You show them a budget that has God and the poor as the first line and not the last line, now you will make them pause and say, time out. Who is this Jesus that you serve? What is this gospel that has taken a hold of your heart? Who is this covenant Lord that you honor by giving away your wealth? It is your obedient and generous and glad giving and not your grabbing or accumulating or pointing to that brings honor and shows the worth of and points to the glory of Jesus. It was about three months ago that this just almost made me cry in the back hall and totally gives me a, a metaphor to give you that will hammer that thought home. You guys know who Sergio and Ali are? Some of you are new and you don't. A bunch of you do. I can embarrass them because they're not here. Sergio and Ali were members of Seven Mile Road. They had an apartment and a car and stuff. And in a love for the God of the gospel, they have sold most of what they own, stuck the rest in a storage trailer in upstate New York, got rid of their home, most of their possessions, and their car, and went with their two young children to the other side of the world to just declare and show and say and live the gospel of Jesus Christ in a missionary place that desperately needs it. Even that right there just arrests the heart of the average person walking down the street. What did you do? You gave away your wealth? Why? Because of the Lord. Tell me about this Lord. He must be unbelievable that you would do that. Even that much is enough to show the worth of our God. But you're not going to believe this. There's a mailbox in the back for the church. So whoever gets in here first on any given day can go into the mailbox and take it out. I go into that mailbox, and there's a letter from Sergio and Ali's group that they're with. And I'm thinking, great, this is an update on them, and I can see how they're doing and read and have something to pray about. I open the envelope, and do you know what is inside of this envelope? People who have given up all of their earthly goods, all of their comforts to serve Jesus on the other side of the globe, raised money to do it. It's a check written out to Seven Mile Road Church. And at the bottom it says, quarterly tithe for Sergio and Ali Mazza. That shows the glory and the weight and the beauty and the worth and the value of Jesus like nothing that I have seen in a long time. Can you imagine setting your heart so resiliently to honor the Lord with whatever wealth you have that you tell your funding agency you send 10% of what we bring in to the work of God in our local church? Someone sees that and they have seen the worth, the glory, the beauty of God. That is how you honor the Lord with your wealth. All right, let's let's translate this into our day for you guys right now. First thing is this. You have to decide who your Lord is. You have to decide who it is. It 
cannot be your wealth and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one or the other. Man, there is no contest in choosing God's right there. If it is Jesus and you have received his grace and his work for you and the benefits of his gospel and the life that he gives in his name and the forgiveness of sins, if Jesus is your Lord, you should have this new deep desire to honor him, to show off how glorious he is in all that you have because you are a steward of those things. And you should have a desire to show off the glory of Jesus by giving away your wealth. That's how you do it. And so, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, do not fail to participate in the communal giving that we do as a congregation, as a church, to the work of God here and to the poor that we give through through the budget of the church. Um, You guys are not farmers. You're not going to get a harvest sometime later this month and come dump a vat of wine and a bucket of grain in here. We don't get hung up on what time you do this or what your pace is with you do this. Some of you guys get paid weekly. Some of you bi-weekly. Some of you monthly. I'm impressed at that. You figure out how to have money at the end of the month. Some of you guys are on seasonal jobs. Uh, Whatever the pace is, the wisdom stands. Don't fail to be a part of the people of God coming and giving (coughs) gladly and generously to the Lord. You are giving to the priesthood work of the old covenant in its new form, the work of the gospel being declared, disciples being made, evangelism being done. You come and you give gladly and regularly to the work of God in the life of our church and to the poor as God leads you to those places and those people of need. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And do it first. Do it with the first fruits of what you earn. So don't miss out on being counted among those who give in the life of this church. And don't have God's work of the gospel be the last thing that you get to if you have enough money at the bottom of your list. So there's a lot of people in this room who just simply do not give enough to the work of God and to the poor. And you know what trips you up? You start with yourself and all this other stuff, and then you wait to go, so let's see what I can do down at the bottom. You've got it backwards. Instead, take a holistic view at your life and your wealth and what God has given you and say, let me think first about what would be faithful giving to God, what would show off his glory. If you begin there, the things that are tripping you up from giving will will be gone if you embrace the idea of God first, right away, as soon as the harvest comes in, joyfully, gladly giving to God. Again, we're not legalistic about what that amount is supposed to be for anybody. I read it like this. I think this is good. The law dealt with us as children and prescribed the exact amount. The gospel treats us as mature and leaves it to your circumstance and your conscience, your principle. In other words, in the older covenant, it was easy. If you had 100 figs, you put 10 figs in a bucket, the best 10 you could find, and the math was easy. That's faithful giving. In the new covenant, some of that language fades into being about your heart. Now, what does a heart do when I say that to you, that a tithe is not necessarily a legal percent to please God? See, here's how screwed up you are. You know what goes through your heart? Because this used to go through mine. Sweet, I can do less than 10% and God will still be happy with me. That's what our heart thinks. So when we say there's no legalistic amount, we don't want you running to, great, how little can I give and still have God give me vats and and, and grain and that, that old stuff Matt was talking about there. See what's wrong with our hearts? No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying give generously, give joyfully, give in a way that if someone saw you give, they would go, time out. You're giving away your wealth to this Lord? Who is this Lord that he is so worthy and so glorious that you will part with your stuff for the good of his name, for his work, for his people, and for the poor? You see how that works? 
So we would encourage you not to give as little as you can, not to think about giving last, but to say, no, I have one Lord, a sincere, singular, pure devotion to Christ. I'm going to look at my wealth. I'm going to honor the Lord with my wealth. I'm going to do that in a way that doesn't minimize it or do it at the end, but do it right away and first. And what's the incredible, ridiculous last thing I get to say to you today? Tied to that obedience, tied to that generosity, tied to that kind of a giving, honoring spirit is this proverbial promise that God will bless you abundantly. Man, there is no reason for us not to be the most generous people in the world. The covenant God of grace has given us salvation and given us wealth. We get to show off how glorious he is by giving gladly right away from our wealth to his work. The only way you will do that is if God changes your heart and you begin to believe these truths to be true. And so that's what I'm going to pray for right now for you guys. Father, I am the first person in the room to say, I am a Western man with a mathematical, logical mind. And I want to minimize what leaves my pocket and what leaves my hand. And I want to give just enough so that you are not mad at me. I pray that you would rip that ridiculous stuff out of my soul and out of our souls. I pray that instead we would have new hearts that seek to honor the Lord with our wealth and to do it by giving generously right away from the first of what you have enabled us to earn as income and to have as wealth. And I pray that as we come, become a sacrificial and generous and giving church, that many in these cities would see the way that we give as a church and say, you have shown off, you have honored, you have announced to me that there is a glorious Savior and Redeemer. His name is Jesus, and he is even worthy of my wealth. Father, we want your name to be known. Would you convince us that the way that we give can honor you and show you off? Hear my prayer for our hearts. Give us a single, simple, pure devotion to Christ with every single thing in our lives, including our wealth. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Amen. When we come down to the table, we come down to bread.